welcome back to the Investing on the Go podcast brought to you by Fun Caliber. This interview looks at current opportunities available to multi-asset managers. And most importantly, we finish with a critical issue within the investment trust industry, the inclusion of investment company costs and the reported cost of funds. I'm Chris Sarley, and today we're joined by Richard Parfit, portfolio manager on the elite rated VT Momentum Diversified Income Fund. Richard, once again, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Chris. You're welcome. Uh, let's go straight into the fund itself. It invests in other funds and trusts, amongst other things, to produce an income. So maybe let's sort of delve into some of the largest holdings, which have currently got the likes of high yield and emerging market debt sitting there. Could you maybe talk us through that? I mean, people, perhaps listeners wouldn't immediately think they are two of the more sort of defensive areas of the market. Maybe just go into a bit more detail on those assets. I mean, you know, ultimately, the fund is a multi-asset fund, and so you would all in there expect you know, a broad range of asset classes you know, in there anyway. But you know, at this time, you know, with rising interest rates you know, across the world, you know, you know, fixed income is a, an improving asset class for, um, the, in the competition for capital. So uh, the, the names that we have uh, um, with Royal London uh, are houses that we've we've been very familiar with over many years, and have a you know, very high level of respect for them in terms of their ability to to add alpha uh, to avoid sort of you know the the the, the accidents that can happen in in fixing them. They have a very granular uh, knowledge on on the bonds that they hold. So um, the 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 role of the short duration global high yield fund is is you know as the name suggests at the short end of the yield curve where where rates are higher um, and also because it's at the shorter ends the, the credit quality tends to be better because uh, credits tend to sort of refinance you know uh, yeah um, and, and secure their 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 sort of their financing you know. Some, some years ahead so so there's no sort of you know, imminent likelihood of of sort of you know, refinancing risk as well because the, the credits are, are running their finances you know accordingly spreads are wider as well right now in the marketplace so so, so you're getting you're getting decent rewards for risk is, is the bottom line and i was going to say also with defaults obviously um High yield is perhaps not the the wild west it once was a few years ago. It's a bit more mature now as well. Um, on the emerging markets side, maybe just talk talk to us a little bit on that as well, please. Yeah, sure. So we've we've got two holdings. Um, um a more active one, you might say, in 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 the shape of Absalom. Um, they're value investors in credit. You know, we are value investors ourselves. So so yeah, they're sort of playing to our own own bias. Uh, they're unconstrained by index, so they'll tend to buy some some issues that are, are smaller in size that will be below the radar of index buyers. And so there's a there's a there's a price reward for that, you know, um, you know discount for that. Um, they're very contrarian. They're not afraid to go into areas that that have had sort of, you know macro sort of events because there's that, that sort of priced uh, you know rewarded for that. Um, so. It, 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 it's, it's not a major part of the portfolio. It's two and a half percent. But we feel that the, the you know again there's there's a there's a place for that. I mean, EM debt in general, you're seeing yields of about seven point two percent versus a twenty year average. Now, yeah, bear in mind, yeah, <laughs> there's been a lot of sort of yield movements in that time. But a, a twenty year average of five point seven. So uh, again. Uh, 
you know, the 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 the, you know, the pricing, the timing opportunity feels you know okay now. That uh, and we also have a um, a, a more sort of um, generic, uh, cheaper fund um, in terms of cost uh, due to short duration. Yeah, um, again, short duration. So so at the shorter end, where, where yields are sort of higher, and also you know credit quality is probably um, a little bit. Um, you know, safer as it were. So so uh, and, and that's 2.2 percent so in, in the end we've got about 4.7 percent across those two funds which again feels you know not unreasonable but given where where yields are right now and okay. um, obviously the fund has a few sort of buckets of the likes of uk equities overseas equities credit and um, one of the others is sort of specialist assets and, and you've got sort of doric nimrod air two and three which are two of the special assets sitting there a lot of our listeners might not be familiar with with these. These are sort of trusts that in, sort of invest in the likes of airline leasing. Um, airlines have been quite a polarizing thing post COVID in terms of the recovery and whether it's real or not. Maybe just give us a view on that and and the recovery and, and their place in your portfolio. Well, so so both these two vehicles have a, a single lease counterparty in Emirates. So there are uh, two different portfolios of of, of uh, A380 aircraft with different vintages, but the single counterparty is Emirates. And Emirates, as I'm sure many of your listeners will know, is a, is a high quality airline. Um, it recently announced the most profitable year in its history. Uh, I think it's only made a loss in one or two years of its history, but it, it, it it's come out of the the pandemic in, in very strong form. Um, you know, not being able to get the aircraft back in the air post-pandemic quick enough. Their, their, their load factors are very high. And the reduction in capacity in the industry has, has really played to that to their strengths. The you know, pricing of tickets has been has been strong. So so we don't have any um concern about the counterparty risk of those two vehicles. Um, they paid their dividends, you know, as expected on time. Emirates paid all their leases right in in, in the pandemic in in full and on time, which could not be said for many other airlines, which 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 failed. So, um, so, so so in terms of credit quality, it's 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 good. Um, the 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 underlying assets, as I said, are A three eighty aircraft. Uh, the Emirates business model relies completely on the A three eighty. Um, in terms of its capacity, uh, they do have uh, future plans for um, uh, uh, having other uh, aircraft types, such as the Boeing 777X, the largest version, the newest, the largest version of 777, but that's stuck in um, uh, sort of licensing uh, and, and authorization um, nightmare with the FAA. So uh, the Emirates has a, has a big problem in terms of being able to meet its um, its likely future demand uh, with capacity, and so it's going to need these aircraft for longer, materially longer than was originally expected. So, so the, these are income vehicles for us, and the residual value risk we see where current pricing of the shares is uh, where the shares are as 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 not 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 zero but minimal. Okay. We talked about a few of the buckets there. I mentioned earlier the likes of UK equities, overseas, credit, and specialist assets. The other area is defensive assets. Now, in that portfolio, you've got the, you've got in that subset, you've got the likes of UK gilts. Um, you also got a couple of gold holdings in there, in particular 91 Global Gold, which perhaps people who who look at that sort of desire for income, et cetera, and perhaps wouldn't immediately associate that with the portfolio. 
Could you maybe explain the role? Is it purely as a defensive ballast? Is there more to it? Just, just give us a bit of insight into that as well, please. Yeah, sure. Yes, it's it's to provide defensive ballast um, alongside our physical gold exposure that we have, um, but 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 with a little bit more alpha opportunity, is what we're fair to say. So so that that ninety one gold miners fund uh, is invested in gold mining companies, and that you know that that sector in recent years has really sort of tightened up its its act uh, uh, in terms of capital allocation, capital discipline. Um, so uh, the, the, the cash generation that they're starting to see is, is, is being sort of returned to shareholders as it happens. And so actually um, starting to, to get a level of income out of, out of that sector, which wouldn't have been the case you know, some years ago. So, so this is a, um, you know, a, a defensive play in terms of its gold, but, it, but it's got uh, you know, active... Um, alpha through that the gold mining companies are sort of undervalued and and, and turning their act around and and we can get an income out of it which is which is helpful when you're running an income plan basically does gold typically have a position in the portfolio or does it depend on the point in the cycle well it, yes it, it it would it, it would always have a have a an element of you know, a presence in it, you know, how much we have would be flexed given on you know, how defensive we want to be, how you know, how you know, how gold has performed in the sort in the shorter term. But you know, over over the long term, then gold is is there as a as a quasi sort of inflation hedge. Um, short term performance is factor is is affected by you know, various other factors. But over time, it it, it should provide an element of, of protection but, but we, we're certainly not sort of betting the house on sort of expecting gold to double or you know overnight sort of things it's, it's just you know, it's just there as, as a as an extra string to the boat i'm going to move to inflation sort of a word that sort of dominated markets in the last 18 months or so um obviously this fund has an inflation target i believe it's inflation cpi plus five percent um obviously that you know, 10 years previously to the last 18 months, although not easy, was more achievable. Things have changed dramatically now. I mean, if 5% plus, if you look at the UK, that, that takes you into double digits for the UK. Maybe just talk me through how you manage that, because I'm not assuming that you just immediately go, well, we can beat that in this sort of extreme scenario. Maybe just talk us through how you manage that, how you go about that. Do you just sort of look at it and go, right, let's beat what we think inflation will be over a five-year time frame? Do you make any changes? Is that why high yield and emerging market debts in there quite at the moment. Yeah, you sure. Know, um, I mean, but, but when that um, objective was set, it was, you know, some years ago and pre, pre-pandemic and, you know, mm. pre the current world order. And so, um, you know, it was probably fair to say that the, the, the degree and pace of inflation sort of uh, rediscovery, shall we say, was not anticipated. Perhaps it should have been. Um, yeah. But... Uh, and I, th- I think it still has a value as, as a as a handle because essentially, you know, no investor can realistically sort of pretend to say that they can achieve a given whatever investment objective it is, whether it be an absolute return or a relative return over a short time frame. So, so, so you're, you're right. You know, over the medium to longer term. Given the nature of the underlying assets within the portfolio, there should be a degree of you know, inflation sort of linkage to those returns, either implicitly or explicitly. 
And so um, the risk is, the reputational risk, as it were, to, to, to the fund is that in, when you have short-term periods like this, that, that you, have, you will have dislocation of, of, of pricing and, and value. As we've seen, um, that, 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 that sort of pricing should normalise over the, over the longer term. And, and so, you know, for example, investment trust companies, uh, which have blown out to very wide discounts to net asset value of sort of 30%, 40% in some cases, you have had a significant short-term pricing event. But the underlying net asset values have not moved by anything like that. And, and, and as yields fall, as we would hope, then those net asset values should, should start to recover. And then, you know, pricing, share prices would recover and discounts narrow and, and maybe get to net asset value or even a, a premium once again. And so it, you, you're kind of seeing a, a back-ended of you know, recovery of performance, as, as, as it were, relative to, to that inflation. Yeah. Um, it, it, it's um, yeah, a bit like the triple lock, you know, you, you, you know you, you, you've got inflation straight away, and then the the the, the, the earnings and you know uh, you know sort of statistics then catch up in 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 subsequent years as as inflation itself abates and the the earn, the, the, the the earnings grows, and it's the same same with investments. Really. Okay. Clearly, you would manage the portfolio for the long term. Um, if inflation was say three or four percent rather than two percent, say three and a half four percent, would you? Would you make a call on something like that in terms of the underlying assets within the portfolio? Does what you feel inflation will be in the long term make any sort of impact on on that? I mean, so if, if there's a if there's a permanent sort of higher level of of of, of inflation, um, you make a call on whether you felt there'd be a permanence, or would you sort of go roll with the punches if people are saying it might fall to two, it might be three or four? Yeah, I mean, probably roll roll with the punches. Are up. It's, it's hard. I, I think where we are right now, it's hard hard to call it. Personally, I, I think we we need to expect um, you know, the sort of the two percent handle of inflation is, is probably a bit, a bit obsolete. I think we can expect, for various structural reasons, a higher level of of, of inflation going forwards of, of say let's say driving and say let's say three, uh, and. What does that do to underlying investments in the portfolio? Well, it should still be okay because you know the the, the assets that we hold are inherently in, inflation linked by 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 whatever activity they're doing, whether it be a you know, a wind farm that, that's 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 earning um, you know its revenues through uh, inflation linked subsidy plus uh, wholesale power prices, which are uh, would appear to be likely to be materially higher than they than was expected so sort of three years ago. So so the return should should catch up with, but or at least you know, um, you know reflect that that higher level of inflation that, that is to be expected going forward. I, I wanted to finish by sort of widening out to the broader investment trust argument. Um, I believe momentum has been quite vocal in the press recently, along with the likes of Baroness Rosaltman and Baroness Bowles of Berkhamsted. Apologies if I butchered that. Um, criticising the government and the FCA about synthetic costs on investment trusts and how they are stifling wider investment into these vehicles. Could you maybe just explain to the listeners what's happening and why you are specifically concerned about this? Yeah, 
yeah, this this is a really really important thing that that um, that people really do need to understand. And I and I apologise if if I try and make something that is a little bit complicated in, into sort of simpler terms. If you, if you look at the income fund as an example, okay, we're reporting an, uh, an ongoing cost uh, number of around one point five four percent. Okay, so within that number. Okay, that's comprised of, say, um, uh, Momentum's own fee of 75 basis points in the B shares. And then on top of that, there's uh, maybe 25, 30 basis points of cost from the from value trackers, the ACD, auditors' costs, you know, legals, all that sort of stuff. But then on top of that, there's about 49 basis points, about half a percent of look-through costs on investment companies. Now, it's only recently that that, that that half a percent of fee from investment companies has come into scope and has been shown into, um, into our cost. Now, the problem is that investment companies, um, when we buy those, we pay the share price. We don't pay their 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 now. It may be that the share price happens to be the now, but that's purely temporary coincidence. We buy the share price, and a share price of any company, whether it be Marks and Spencers or or, or HSBC or an investment company, investment trust such as Greencoat UK Wind, okay, it, that share price is a reflection of various factors, multiple factors one of which would be its cost of operation. So if all things were equal, you would you would expect that if Marks and Spencers became suddenly highly inefficient and doubled its cost and its margins fell, then the share price would fall, it would respond to that. So 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 you're paying a price that reflects those inherent costs. You know, previously those costs were, were not included. And but but they've now for for reasons, you know, which are understandable to be sort of uh, open and to have disclosures. In the, 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 those those disclosed costs are, are, are being included, but they're not actually being paid by investors. They've already been paid through the share price. So including them in the reported cost of our fund of you know um, 1.54% in total, half and half percent of which is through investment companies, has not been paid. It's a purely optical number. Okay. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, you double counting. So to include them, you, it's implying a double counting effect. And just to give an example of how this plays out, so if I, as an investor, wanted to buy SSE PLC, which is a an operating company, name people, many people will know, operates wind farms and and, and power generation. Okay, um, it's a listed company with an internal management structure. That company reports. In its profit and loss accounts, of its reporting accounts, 1.1 billion pounds of operating costs. Well, it would do because it's an operating company. It has staff, employees, and all the rest of it. So 1.1 billion pounds of cost. But it's not an investment company. So it is optically free. I could buy that and there'd be no cost for me to disclose. Okay. Now, if I look at Greenco UK Wind, which is a very similar company, in fact, it, it operates wind farms, some of which were bought from SSE PLC and continue to be operated by SSE, but Greenco Wind owns the, the, the wind farms. That's an investment company, an investment trust, and that has to, by, by regulation, disclose costs of, let's say, 
1%. Okay. So green coat wind accounts for about one and a half percent of, of, of the income fund. So by bringing that into scope, okay, it then adds about one and a half basis points. So that's that's a member of the 49 basis points of our of our costs. So that's made my fund look a little bit more expensive, despite the fact that you know, you know it, 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 it's not doing anything different from SSE, but it has to report across SSE, it doesn't. And, and so the, there's this in, in understandable, understandable implication that cost is bad. Well, yeah, yeah, clearly if you double cost, you know, returns are fallen, but I'm just trying to explain it's where it's been disclosed. You don't want to have this double counting effect. And as it happens, Greenco Wind, since its inception, has outperformed SSE by one and a half percent per year in terms of shareholder return. So, 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 so investors are, and the consumer duty that's come in, that it, quite rightly, you know, there needs to be consumer understanding on costs. But the trouble is, we're now got a situation where some some funds. Are, 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 are looking optically expensive just by the, the coincidence of what, how they happen to decide to, to invest in wind farms, for example, whether it be SSE or green wind. And these guidelines are only guidelines, not, they've not been adopted by everyone. So some people, some investors may feel, oh, it's okay, I'll, I'll avoid all this, I'll just buy an ETF. Well, the trouble is Vanguard and BlackRock and, and, and Lux and Lee in general, they've decided not to adopt these rules. So you could end up buying an ETF that's linked to the FTSE 250, and the FTSE 250 has a number of investment companies in it, investment trusts. But those investment trust look-through costs would not be included in the reported costs of the ETF. And nor should it, really, because for the reasons I've explained, yeah, they're not actual economic costs of optical costs. So quite rightly, they've not adopted it. But we as a um, with a, a third party ACB as, as Value Track, we don't have control over that. Value Track has taken, along with other third party ACBs, has taken the decision to adopt these guidelines and to include these costs within, within our own costs. So we've essentially got an unlevel playing field. Unlevel insofar as do I invest in SSE or green codes? Well, I could. Well, maybe to make myself look cheap, I'll buy SSE. But trouble is, I'm, I'm buying something that's not going to perform as well as Green Coat Wind or hasn't done. Or, you know, I'm, I'm looking relatively expensive versus another uh, product which just doesn't adopt these rules. So basically, the whole system is a complete mess. So this is why we've, we you know, and other companies are engaging with, with various bodies, trade bodies and, and governments to try and get this sorted out. because. It's failing the consumer. Consumers do not understand what they're paying for, what they've got, and the differences, the important differences between products, particularly because you've got this focus on cost and value. Understandably, okay, cost is easy, it's a number. Well, how do you value value? It's, a, it's an ethereal sort of concept. So everyone's going to cost and comparing products on cost, but they're not comparable figures. So I apologize for the, 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 the lengthy sort of diatribe this is a really, really important issue that, that, that if investors are going to make investment decisions based on costs, it needs to be very clear that, that the number they're looking at may not actually be the fair number that they think it is. It, it sounds a bit like uh, common sense needs to prevail and that this is a case where 
too much transparency becomes a bad thing because that yeah. transparency is not necessarily right. Absolutely. Uh, we've got nothing against disclosure. It's great. You know, investment trusts should disclose their costs that are within their business. But how do you, how is that bigger than used or abused, you know, down the line? Because, you know, it's, you can use that figure to compare investment company against investment company. It's probably given you a, a measure of indication as to how well they're running their business. But you can't compare an investment trust cost versus a fund cost. They're fundamentally different things. Well, let's hope common sense does prevail. Richard, thank you very much for joining us today once again. Thanks, Chris. The VT Momentum Diversified Income Fund is a globally diversified multi-asset fund with a straightforward investment approach centered on value investing and income generation. To learn more about the VT Momentum Diversified Income Fund, visit fundcaliber.com. And don't forget to subscribe to the Investing on the Go podcast available wherever you get your podcasts. Please remember, we've been discussing individual companies to bring investing to life for you. It's not a recommendation to buy or sell. The fund may or may not still hold these companies at the time of listening. Elite ratings are based on Fund Calibre's research methodology and are the opinion of Fund Calibre's research team only. Mm -hmm.